The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On February 16th, 1991, 20-year-old Tanya Harding stepped onto the ice in Minneapolis, Minnesota for the U.S. Figure Skating Championships. She cut an atypical figure. Her skating dress was mint green polyester. Her blonde bangs were teased into frizzy curls. But Tanya was more than unique in her appearance. She was about to attempt something none of her fellow competitors could even imagine. A triple axel. When her music started, Tanya first performed back-to-back camel spins, extending her right leg behind her in arabesque, balancing on her left blade as she whipped her body around. Then she pushed off, charging down the rink, gathering power for a triple lutz. Tanya balanced on her left foot, gliding backward, then launched off her right toe pick and rotated in the air three times. She landed perfectly on her right blade. But a triple lutz was a relatively routine move for Tanya Harding. In his commentary, figure skating analyst Dick Button voiced what the entire rink was thinking. And now the question is whether she will become the first American to attempt and complete a triple axle jump. Fueled by momentum, Tanya propelled down the ice, gaining speed. Then, halfway down the rink, she let herself coast on her right foot. One breath, two breaths. Then she turned and pushed off the outside edge of her left skate. Tanya rotated an impossible three and a half times before landing back on the ice on her right blade. She nailed it. The crowd exploded in cheers and applause. In that one split second, her entire life changed. Tanya Harding made history. As sports reporter Chris Connolly lamented, if we could stop her story right there, it would be one of the happiest stories you could ever see. But her dreams would end abruptly less than three years later, when her life was rocked with violence and scandal. Tanya Harding would be notorious for all the wrong reasons. Welcome to Sports Criminals, a ParCast original. Every week, we dive into the dark side of sports history and look at athletes who not only broke the law, 
but broke the rules and covenants of their sport. We'll also uncover how their actions impacted the history of the sport they played. I'm Tim Johnson. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Sports Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Well, this week we're diving into the life of Olympic figure skater Tanya Harding. She reached the pinnacle of her career in the early 1990s as the first American woman to attempt and complete a triple axel jump in competition. She was expected to win gold at the 1992 Albertville Olympics, but she fizzled out, placing fourth. However, as we'll cover next week, Tanya got another shot two years later in the 1994 Lillehammer Olympics. But she was no longer the favorite to win. This time, fellow American Nancy Kerrigan was expected to take home the prize, until she was attacked by a masked man about six weeks before the games. And many people suspected that her greatest rival, Tanya, orchestrated the assault. What price was Tanya really willing to pay in her pursuit of Olympic gold? Was she involved in the attack on Nancy Kerrigan? Or was she simply surrounded by the wrong kind of people, a victim herself? In any rivalry, from the Hatfields and McCoys to the Capulets and Montagues, animosities are deepened by our fundamental differences. Well, this was certainly the case with Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding. Their story was painted with a stark palette, with no room for any gray area. Nancy fit the prototypical image of a women's figure skating champion, a glamorous, all-American girl. She was graceful, elegant, and poised. She looked more like a ballerina in skates than an athlete powerful enough to launch herself into the air with one foot. Her routines were set to compilations from Beauty and the Beast, and her costumes were designed by Vera Wang. Tanya, on the other hand, was pure power, raw and unrefined. Rather than try to change who she was to fit someone else's standard, she seemed to enjoy shoving her sharp edges down their throats. She sewed her own costumes using bright, garish fabrics, Her routines were set to the music she liked listening to, like rapper Tone Loke's Wild Thing and Latour's electronica hit, People Are Still Having Sex. The two women couldn't have been more opposite, and the media relished in highlighting their differences. As Tanya put it, Nancy's a princess. That's how everybody saw her. She's a princess, and I'm a pile of crap. The differences in these women made Tanya a clear underdog, but she forced the skating world to recognize that she was a contender with her talent on the ice. She could jump higher, spin faster, and skate harder. She made the world pay attention to her by accomplishing what no one else could. Tanya first stepped onto the ice at three and a half years old. In her biography, The Tanya Tapes, she described being drawn to skating as one of her earliest memories. One day, while she was shopping at the Lloyd Center with her mom, she saw people skating on the mall's public rink. 
she had to try it. She remembered, My dad said okay, and my mother said no. So I cried, and finally she agreed. The first thing I did was make a pile of shavings on the ice and start to eat them. My mother told me I had to skate like the others or we'd leave. So I skated. She was three and a half, and she just skated. She was that naturally talented. Tanya's mother, Lavona Golden, alleged that Tanya could pick up any kind of move just by watching someone else on the ice. She taught herself the basics through mimicry. To Lavona's credit, she recognized immediately that her daughter was special. So she asked around until she found Tanya the best ice skating coach in the Portland area, Diane Rawlinson. When Lavona initially approached Diane, she refused to take Tanya as a student. She didn't work with children that young. But not to be denied, Lavona sent four-year-old Tanya out onto the rink, instructing her to skate circles around Diane to prove that she was worth training. And it worked. Diane agreed to a six-month trial period. They ended up working together for the next decade. And by the time Tanya was six, she was landing jumps. At nine, she hit her first triple loop. And by 14, she was already attempting her now famous triple axel. Lavona alleged that Tanya was self-determined in her training, up before her 4 a.m. alarm clock every morning, ready to go to practice. But it's very likely that Tanya's intensity and determination stemmed from a darker source. She had to be the best to survive. Lavona was reportedly an abusive alcoholic. Tanya alleged that every morning, her mother filled a thermos halfway with coffee and the rest of the way with brandy. Then the two of them headed for the rink at 4.30 a.m. Once they got to the ice, Lavona stood on the sidelines watching Tanya skate, drinking from her thermos. When she wasn't skating up to snuff, Lavona let her know, loudly criticizing her in front of everyone. Lavona has denied that any of her comments were abusive. Instead, she saw herself as motivating her daughter. She alleged that if no one told Tanya she wasn't good enough, then she wouldn't feel like she had anything to prove, and she'd be nothing. In Lavona's eyes, she was helping her daughter achieve her potential. But given the fragility of a young child's ego, this constant stream of criticism from her mother likely affected Tanya's sense of self. If she wasn't perfect, she was worthless. Diane Rawlinson described this confusing dynamic in an interview, saying, Tanya's family loves her deeply, but her mother doesn't really know how to get the best out of her. She tends to put her down to get her to perform. In one apocryphal story, Lavona refused to let five-year-old Tanya leave the ice to use the bathroom. Instead, she forced her to keep skating even after she urinated on herself. Allegedly, she said, I paid for you to practice, so you're going to stay on that ice and practice. You need all the practice you can get. Tanya also contends that off the ice, Lavona was physically abusive whenever she felt like Tanya didn't perform well. Again, Lavona disputes this, but other people around Tanya have made statements to support the allegations. 
A mother of one of her skating peers alleged that Lavona once slapped Tanya in the face so hard it knocked her off the stool she was seated on. Sandra Luco, who skated with Tanya as a child, described an incident she witnessed personally in the Net Burstein's 30 for 30 documentary, The Price of Gold. She said, During a skating competition, I was in the bathroom and Tanya and her mom came in there. Tanya was having some issues and Mrs. Harding just lost her temper and hit Tanya repeatedly with a hairbrush. It was very, very, very upsetting to me. Sandra, only 11 at the time, was determined to protect her friend. She approached Diane Rawlinson and told her she was calling Child Protective Services. But Diane convinced her not to do it. Because, of course, Diane was already painfully aware of what was going on. Lavona's abusive habits were apparently an open secret in the Portland skating community. But everyone also knew that if CPS got involved and removed Tanya from the Harding home, her skating career would be over. Figure skating is essentially a white-collar sport, or less generously, a snob sport. It's incredibly expensive and time-consuming. Lavona paid for equipment, ice time, private lessons, costumes, competition entry fees, travel to competitions, and more. She drove Tanya to the rink every morning for practice, then drove her to school, then drove herself to work, oftentimes for a double shift. In a 1976 interview, Albert Harding estimated that it cost $225 a month for five-year-old Tanya's lessons. In 2019, that would be over $1,000 a month just for rink time. And the Hardings were not wealthy people. They struggled to pay their bills and were evicted several times over back rent. When Tanya reached the competition level in her early teens, the cost burden tripled. To come up with the money, Lavona maxed out credit cards, worked multiple jobs, and collected donations. Tanya recalled combing roadsides with her mom to collect bottles and cans for refunds. Lavona dressed Tanya in her competition outfit for school picture day so they could use the photos in place of professional headshots. Every single dollar went into skating, sometimes even over food. Portland reporter Ann Schatz said that a lot of the time, Tanya was skating on an empty stomach. Lavona made a huge investment in her daughter, and she expected equally large returns. She had the example right in front of her with America's sweetheart, Dorothy Hamill, who won gold medals at both the 1976 World Figure Skating Championships and Olympics. Soon after, she was a spokesperson for Ford and Clairol. She became the featured star of the Ice Capades. So, in Lavona's eyes, once Tanya was an Olympian, she'd get so many endorsement deals, the whole Harding family would be taken care of for the rest of their lives. This was their ticket to a better life. And so Lavona pushed and pushed and screamed and slapped and beat Tanya, all in the name of protecting her investment. But in pushing her daughter to be the fiercest physical competitor, she left her emotionally stunted and vulnerable. 
The abusive dynamics of the relationship taught Tanya two things. First, that it was acceptable to use violence to get what you want, and second, that love is conditional. She was only worthy of affection if she was the best. So if Tanya wanted to be happy, if she wanted to be loved, she better be the best. No matter the cost, no matter the pain. Coming up, Tanya climbs the competition ladder towards Olympic gold. Now back to the story. In February of 1986, after years of hard work, 15-year-old Tanya Harding qualified for her first U.S. national championships at the senior level. She gave a strong showing and finished sixth overall. But when she called to tell Lavona Harding the results, she was unimpressed. Tanya had to stress to her mother, no, that's good. Sandra Luco recorded Tanya's side of the phone call in her documentary, Sharp Edges. It was clear from Tanya's expression that Lavona was berating her sixth place performance. After they hung up, Tanya relayed to the camera, she said, so I heard you missed your combination. You didn't get any credit at all for that. You did terrible, you know that. So the rest of programs sucked also. Tanya felt that no matter what she did, it was never good enough for Lavona. She carried that mindset with her all the way to the Skate America competition that October. One of the youngest competitors on the ice, it was an honor for her just to compete. No one expected much of her. Instead, they looked to the more seasoned skaters to impress. So when Tanya stepped onto the ice for her long program, wearing an electric blue skating dress, her short blonde hair teased out into a fluffy mullet, and the judges and the crowd prepared to underestimate her. Tanya took a few seconds to get comfortable, fumbling a bit in her initial choreography. But once she pushed off the ice to gain some speed, she found her zone. 20 seconds into her program, she nailed a double axle, surprising everyone with the height of her jump. And with that, she was off and running. Her next jump, a triple toe loop, was equally flawless. Commentator Peggy Fleming exclaimed, she makes it look so easy, you almost don't think of them as triples when you watch. Her confidence and energy radiated on the ice as she glided through her routine. Her spins were faster, her jumps were higher, she held her positions longer. Commentator Dick Button reminded viewers again and again just how young she was, no matter how mature she looked on the ice. Double axle, double toe loop into back-to-back camel sit spins. Tanya was on fire, landing jump after jump. After her finale scratch spin, rotating so fast she was practically a blur, Button proclaimed over the applauding crowd, Four minutes just doesn't seem like long enough. To anyone watching, it was clear that Tanya Harding had arrived. She placed second overall in the competition, and she still had two more years to train before the 1988 Calgary Olympics. She was on her way. But struggles in Tanya's personal life derailed her performance on the ice. In the incredibly mental sport of figure skating, 
Tanya just couldn't block out the noise of her family drama. Soon after her silver medal at Skate America, Tanya was attacked by one of her half-brothers, 26-year-old Chris Davison. He stopped by the Harding home to see his mother, Lavona, but she and Albert Harding were out that night. Tanya was uncomfortable to be alone with Chris. She alleged that he molested her once when she was in elementary school and he was a teenager. And tonight, Chris was intoxicated. He made a pass at 15-year-old Tanya, trying to kiss her. Brandishing a curling iron, she warned him that if he tried it again, she would burn him. When Chris lunged a second time, she made good on the threat, pressing the hot metal into his neck. Then Tanya fled upstairs and locked herself in the bathroom. Chris chased after, enraged. He eventually managed to break down the bathroom door. Terrified, Tanya called 911, but Chris warned, if you say something's wrong, I'll kill you. So Tanya lied to the operator and told her the call was a mistake. Everything was fine. She hung up. But the operator called back. She asked Tanya, are you sure everything's okay there? It's not, is it? Not wanting to let anything on to Chris, Tanya just said, yep, and then hung up the phone again. When Chris came at her again, Tanya grabbed a hockey stick and whacked him in the side of the head. She ran across the street to a neighbor, sobbing. From there, she called 911 once more, but before the police arrived, Chris sped off in his car. Tanya went back home and locked all the doors and windows. She heard a car pull up outside. It was Chris, again. He pounded on the front door, screaming for her to open it, threatening to kill her for calling the cops. Tanya hid and curled herself into a ball, covering her ears, trying to block out the sound of Chris beating at the door, utterly petrified. But then, the voice yelling for her to open up changed. It was the police, finally. When she opened the door, Chris was in handcuffs. Afterward, he admitted that he was so intoxicated he had no memory of the entire incident. Tanya told her parents about what happened. They didn't believe her. Lavona placed blame on both of her children for the attack, saying, well, he did have a problem with drinking. I wouldn't put it past Chris to try and get a kiss. But Tanya has a vivid imagination. She has a tendency to tell tall tales. A few months after Chris went to jail, Lavona moved out of the house and divorced Albert. Tanya said that she came home one day and all the furniture was gone. Her mom made it clear that she had zero interest in maintaining any kind of custody, so Tanya stayed with her father. At first, this was freeing. Tanya always had a better relationship with her dad and was happy to be out from under Lavona's thumb, but her skating suffered amid all the upheaval. Her placement in competition was all over the map. Fifth at the 1987 and 1988 U.S. Championships third at the 87 NHK Cup. She didn't even place at the next two Skate Americas. Then, Albert Harding got a new job in Boise, Idaho. He offered to bring Tanya with him, but leaving Portland would effectively end her skating career. Her coach, Diane Rawlinson, 
donated most of her lessons. Tanya traded ice time for odd jobs at the rink. She wouldn't get those kind of deals in Idaho. So she moved in with Lavona, who was already remarried to her sixth husband. And there was no love lost between mother and daughter. Tanya said that she stayed away from the house as much as possible, spending hours at the rink practicing or working. She only came home to sleep. While her tireless dedication on the ice may have been fueled by toxicity, it paid off at the 1989 U.S. Figure Skating Championships in Baltimore, Maryland. After a few years of rocky performances, 18-year-old Tanya came back with a vengeance. Her short program was flawless. For her final section, set to the William Tell Overture, she executed a series of quick toe-pick turns and footwork across the ice into a dizzying scratch-spin-sit-spin combination. The routine earned her high marks and she moved up to second place between Jill Trenery and Christy Yamaguchi. If she could hold her position in the free skate, she would be invited to join the American team at the World Championships in Paris, France. Tanya took the ice in the same electric blue dress she wore at Skate America three years earlier when she clinched the silver medal. Her music started. The fourth movement of Dvorak's New World Symphony. The halting, haunting baritone notes were reminiscent of the theme from Jaws. Tanya smelled blood in the water. Immediately, she landed a huge double axle, closely followed by a powerful triple toe loop. Her music intensified, blaring trombones and booming timpani drums. She let the energy of the symphony propel her around the ice. She hit a triple double, a triple lutz, a flying open death drop spin, all within the first minute and a half. Then her music softened into sweeter violins. Tanya let go of her power for a moment and glided gracefully down the ice into a deep layback spin. She found an unprecedented length and elegance in her movements, even slowing down her camel spins into languid balletic turns. For her final section, the music picked back up in tempo and Tanya pushed off again down the ice, gaining speed to jump triple loop into a double loop, and another triple double loop. Then the finale, a series of spins, this time using all her power and speed as she moved from back-to-back camel spins, to a sit spin, to a layback spin, to a dizzying scratch spin, then dropping down to one knee, throwing her arms up into the air, and posing. Commentator Dick Button declared over the roaring crowd, There's a new wave of American women skaters at the top. As Tanya skated off the ice, she beamed with pride, alternating between raising her clenched fists in celebration and applauding along with the crowd. When she reached the edge of the rink, Diane Rawlinson was there waiting for her and immediately pulled her into a hug, so immensely proud of her pupil. Tanya grinned on camera as her technical marks from the judges were posted. A 5.7, 7 5.8s, even a 5.9. They were amazing numbers. The highest mark achievable is a 6.0. 
But when her style and composition marks posted, Tanya's face fell, her disappointment palpable. Her smile collapsed into a thin line as she looked at the numbers. Three 5.6s, five 5.7s, only one 5.8. The crowd erupted in boos. She was robbed. The score knocked Tanya from second place to third. She would still go to the world championships, but only as an alternate. She wouldn't skate. A few months later, at the 1989 Skate America, Tanya took home the gold medal, but it felt like a consolation prize after what happened at nationals, and it left a bad taste in her mouth. Tanya had long contended that she was discriminated against by competition judges for failing to fit the mold of the prototypical ice princess. She felt that even though she could outskate some of the other Barbie dolls, she was marked down for her less feminine appearance and handmade costumes. It made her feel like no matter how hard she worked, she would never get a fair shot. In addition to this disappointment, Tanya's personal life was once again upended. Lavona gave her an ultimatum. She either had to start paying rent or she had to move out of the house. Tanya chose the latter and moved in with her boyfriend of three years, Jeff Galuli. But it wasn't a healthy relationship. They fought constantly, both verbally and physically, and it clearly affected her skating. At next year's nationals competition, Tanya placed seventh overall. It was her lowest ranking since she first competed at age 15. Afterward, she told Diane Rawlinson that she needed to take a break from skating. Her heart just wasn't in it anymore. Diane had seen the decline in Tanya, and frankly, she needed a break too. She said in an interview, the bottom line is it wasn't working. Tanya wasn't training and wasn't meeting the goals she had set for herself, so I delegated her to Dodie. Dodie Teachman was one of Diane's earliest students. She eventually came on as an instructor. Because she was closer in age to Tanya, she was able to relate to her more as an older sister, whereas Diane often had to act like a surrogate mother. Dodie convinced Tanya to come back and skate for the 1991 season. The Alberville Olympics were just around the corner. If she ever wanted to have a shot at gold, this was it. Tanya agreed. She'd give it one more year, and she'd either be good enough to go to the Olympics, or she'd hang up her skates. But she still wasn't going to play by anyone's rules but her own. She wasn't going to change who she was to try to appeal to the judges. No, she was going to do something so amazing on the ice, it would be impossible for anyone to deny her raw talent. Tanya had been working for years on one of the most difficult jumps for any skater to perform. Now, as she geared up for what might be her final season, she set a new goal for herself become the first American woman to attempt and land a triple axle jump in competition. As Portland reporter Ann Schatz described, she was Tanya, one and done. 
and she said, I'm going to go against everything that speaks of Ice Princess, and I am going to bring my grit, the athleticism that you haven't seen before, and I'm going to rock it to this music. How do you like me now? Coming up, Tanya sets her sights on the 1992 Olympics. Now, back to the story. After finishing seventh at the 1990 U.S. Figure Skating Championships, 19-year-old Tanya Harding considered hanging up her skates. She was jaded by her treatment from the judges, and once again, her personal life was in upheaval. A month after the disappointing finish, she married her boyfriend of five years, 22-year-old Jeff Galuli. Albert Harding said he told Jeff on the day of the wedding, I never liked you, but welcome to the family. Their honeymoon period was brief, if it even existed at all. Even Tanya admitted, we got married for all the wrong reasons. Tanya had initially moved in with Jeff out of desperation, not sure where else to go in the wake of Lavona's ultimatum to pay rent or find another place to live. When Tanya moved in with Jeff, all she'd really done was move from one abuser's home to another. Tanya alleged Jeff was physically violent with her on a regular basis, slapping her, shoving her, and pulling her hair. In an interview with ABC News, Tanya recalled one of these altercations. We were at the 7-Eleven and I got nachos. He said that they would make me fat and he hit them out of my hand and then he grabs me and says, let's go, and then, wha-bam. Some research suggests that children who experience abuse are predisposed to enter abusive relationships in adulthood. Psychotherapist Joanna Ivana Potkanska explained, we tend to remain in patterns that are familiar to us. We often do not realize that the relationships we are in are abusive, especially if we grew up in dysfunctional families. Lavona's verbal and physical abuse conditioned Tanya. When she experienced the same behavior from Jeff, it was par for the course. In the same ABC interview, Tanya explained, I mean, I've known that I'm stupid, ugly, bitch, fat, never amount to anything for my whole entire life. Childhood abuse from a caregiver warps how victims relate to future partners because violence and love become enmeshed with one another. But Kanska continued, the idea that we are loved as we are being abused or that we are being abused because we are loved, which many perpetrators use as an excuse to justify their actions, can become a template for the way we relate to the world and ourselves. In Nanette Burstein's 30 for 30 documentary, The Price of Gold, Tanya confirmed this connection between Jeff and Lavona's abuse. My mom hit me and she loved me. Jeff hits me, he loves me. It's just the way life goes. And Jeff and Lavona's motivations for their abuse may have come from a similar place. He worked a minimum wage job at the Oregon Liquor Control Commission warehouse. When he looked at Tanya, he had dollar signs in his eyes. Just like Lavona, controlling Tanya meant controlling his meal ticket. However, while Galuli admitted to violence in his marriage to Tanya, he alleged that the relationship was abusive on both sides. He said, 
We might get into a little brawl now and then about what's going to go on, and usually she wins. I mean, I'll admit it to the world, she's the boss of the family. Regardless, Tanya's home life was once again filled with aggression and violence. In the fall of 1990, she and Galuli briefly separated, then reconciled. But the marriage remained rocky. Her solace, as it had always been, was skating. As she prepared for the 1991 competition season, 20-year-old Tanya had her sights on the upcoming Alberville Olympics, her last chance at a gold medal. But she felt like biased judging had held her back in the past, so she needed to do something so impressive they couldn't deny her. A triple axel. At the time, only one other woman in the world had landed a triple axel in competition, Japanese skater Midori Ito. Tanya was determined to become the first American. Any axle jump, single, double, or triple, is an edge jump as opposed to a toe-pick jump like a Lutz. This means that instead of pushing off the ice with the help of their toe-pick, a skater literally jumps into the air off the edge of their skate, using only their momentum and muscle strength. In addition, to make the required rotations, Skaters take off facing forward and land skating backward. CNN senior news writer Holly Yan described the immense challenge. You're racing across the ice at full speed, and suddenly your skate goes perpendicular, which forces you to stop moving forward. All that momentum hurls you up into the air. While hanging midair, you spin your body around three and a half rotations in less than a second. Finally, you land on the foot that you didn't use for the takeoff, and you come down with immense force, more than four times your body weight. If this was to be Tanya's final shot, then she was shooting for the moon. In February, she headed to Minneapolis, Minnesota for the 1991 U.S. Championships. After placing seventh in last year's competition, Tanya wasn't on anyone's short list of contenders. But there were whispers of Tanya's ambitious plan, rumors of her scheduled triple axel. When she stepped onto the ice, it was a softer Tanya. She'd grown out her hair. Her costume was a more demure mint green instead of the electric colors of the past. Though, of course, Tanya being Tanya, She'd also set the final section of her routine to Tone Loke's Wild Thing. Her music started, and she pushed off the ice. The triple axel was scheduled as the third move in her program. In the first 60 seconds of her four minutes on the ice, her fate would be sealed. First, a set of camel spins, then a triple lutz, and then the rink collectively held their breath. Would she land the triple axel? Reporter Christine Brennan described the anticipation. One of the reasons skating has always been so popular on television is because there is that unbelievable moment of decision. If you go up for a jump and come crashing down and you're on your hands and knees, it's over. There is no second free throw. There's no third strike. There's no fourth down. It's over. But it wasn't over for Tanya. 
She landed the triple axle and she absolutely nailed the rest of her program, which included six other triple jumps. The judges awarded her eight 5.9s and even a perfect 6.0. Not only did she make history, but she won the entire competition. She was the United States champion. A few months later, at Skate America, she did it again. But this time, she landed two triple axles during the competition. Another gold medal. Another record broken. She was headed to the 1992 Olympics. At first, this accomplishment gave Tanya incredible momentum in all areas of her life. She separated from Jeff Galuli and filed a restraining order against him. In the paperwork, she stated she was afraid for her life after she learned Jeff had purchased a shotgun. She moved into an apartment with a friend and focused on her skating. She started a new relationship with another man who friends described as having a calming effect. She was in the best shape of her life, down to 96 pounds and bench pressing 110. Her coach, Dodie Teachman, described her as untouchable. But by the fall of 1991, just a few months before the games, Jeff and Tanya suddenly reconciled. She said, I know it seemed like I was happy, but something was missing, and now I know what it was. Jeff and I love each other more than ever. We're going to get a counselor and work it out. I know he's changed. I see it in his eyes, and I believe in him. I'm going to be married once in my whole life, and that's the way I'm going to look at it. I don't want to lose him. I really don't. But friends and coaches worried about the influence Jeff had on Tanya. She started partying and smoking cigarettes. Yet Tanya struggled with asthma her entire life. Her training slipped. Dodie Teachman said, It just sort of reached a point where Tanya wasn't focused. Her training schedule was erratic. So it was very difficult for her to get ready for the 92 Olympics. At the games in February, Tanya was out of shape and late to the party, literally. While most of her fellow skaters arrived in Alberville in late January, Tanya showed up only three days before the competition started. Once she got there, she had problems with her equipment. One of her skate blades broke off. Tanya later said that the replacement blade was reattached at the wrong angle, affecting her ability to land her jumps cleanly. Which meant she didn't land her triple axle. Not only did she miss out on Olympic gold, she didn't even place in the medal range, walking away fourth. Ironically, Nancy Kerrigan overtook her for the bronze medal, a foreshadowing of the close rivalry that would develop between the two women over the next few years. But for Tanya, what should have been the triumphant pinnacle of the greatest skating season of her life instead became her greatest disappointment. As Portland reporter Ann Schatt said, if you don't win the gold in skating, you're an afterthought. So fourth feels like 400th. Tanya returned home defeated, but determined to keep skating. She approached her former coach, Diane Rawlinson, 
and asked her to resume their training. She wasn't ready to give up on her dreams of Olympic gold yet. While the Olympics are typically held every four years, the cycle of games shifted in the early 90s. After 1992, the committee started staggering the winter and summer competitions. While the next summer games would be held in 1996, the next winter games would be in 1994. Which meant that Tanya Harding had a second shot at greatness. She had one more chance to make history, land her triple axel on the world stage, and walk away with the gold. That one thought consumed her for the next two years. She had to redeem herself, and she wasn't going to let anything or anyone stand in her way. Thanks again for listening to Sports Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two of Tanya Harding. We'll see how the competition between Tanya and Nancy Kerrigan intensified in the months leading up to the 1994 Games as both women jockeyed for the gold medal. We'll also cover the dramatic attack on Nancy Kerrigan and explore the evidence for and against Tanya Harding's alleged involvement. You can find all episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Sports Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Sports Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Sports Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Sports Criminals was written by Abigail Cannon and stars Tim Johnson and Carter Roy. 